You don't want to meet her. Oh, yes, I would love to meet the famous Stacy Lewis, the love of your high school life. Is she, uh, pretty? Come on, how pretty can she be? She's almost your age. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And what is the cliche we are about to dive into, Amy? Well, this week we're going to meet the ex. Meeting the ex. What happens when the ex, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, etc., comes to town. What are the shows we're discussing? Well, and in this case, it's all ex-girlfriends. So we are talking about the Bob Newhart Show, Season 1, Episode 5, Good Night, Nancy. Coach, Season 1, Episode 8, Parents Weekend. Home Improvement, Season 2, Episode 22, X Marks the Spot. And My Name is Earl, Season 1, Episode 21, The Bounty Hunter. Yeah, so this is a sitcom-y situation that definitely does happen in life. Do you have any experiences that come to mind of worlds colliding and, oh, you know, somebody got jealous or something went wrong because you had to have dinner with the ex or something? No, not dinner, but I definitely have had ex-girlfriends um, come into the picture to try to, like, win their boyfriends or their ex-boyfriends back. Oh, it's funny. So you're taking the point of view of, in in all of these cases, I guess, the woman, which makes sense. But I was thinking of it more, you know, these shows always take the point of view of the person whose ex right, is coming into town is, and has to balance those priorities or those feelings and everything. I also haven't really had the experience of having to have the ex come and navigate that with the current lover. I have been, (laughs) you know, everyone loves the word lover, right? It's so gross. I hate that word. I believe it was uh, Liz Lemon who said, I can only stand that word when it's in between meat and pizza. She is correct. But yeah, I've had the experience of being the ex My girlfriend for several years when I was younger is the cousin of one of my best friends to this day. And so, you know, we've crossed paths various times over the years. It's always been fine. But I feel like the last time we saw each other was a funeral, unfortunately, for my friend's dad. And she had to pick me up from the train station with her new boyfriend her new live-in boyfriend who was named jay had the same oh, that's right first I name this. as me was a bald man bald white man about the same age as me basically same exact physical description and was this like extreme introvert uh, <laughs> which i often am in non-podcast situations and it was a little bizarre and And yeah, I remember in that circumstance, for whatever reason, 
feeling like the both of them had this kind of nervous energy, like they were almost trying to impress me. This sort of like, oh, I don't know why I did it like that. I'm, I'm usually much better at, you know, I'm much better at, at parallel parking than that or, or whatever it was. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know exactly what this is, but I guess I'm the high status person in this <laughs> scenario. I don't know. But that was the experience that kind of jumps to mind with this. That is the, what a delightful story. I think that's such a sweet story. Yeah, I don't I don't really have stories like that. Like I didn't I didn't date a lot. Like I was much more of a casual dater. And so the first guy that was like, I really dated, I ended up marrying. <laughs> yeah. And so far we haven't crossed his path. <laughs> and we will all thank the gods for that. Yeah. But look, this is a, a trope that is so clearly at home in this sitcom world, right? Because it's a way to have situations where there's lots of tension and conflict yes. that's not really anybody's fault. Like yes. in all of these stories, we're going to see how people can sort of foist each other into these very uncomfortable dilemmas, not really on purpose, just not really understanding each other's point of view. Well, and they're trying to. I think that's what we see with a lot of these situations is everybody's really trying to be like, have a high emotional intelligence quotient, you know, where yeah. they're trying to be good to the person they're with or the person they used to be with and just yeah. sort of like navigate that what could potentially be a little bit of a minefield. What I think is really interesting about this lineup is that all of these, you know, normally we talk about the tropes, like the really tropey tropes kind of coming later on when they've run out of stories. These are all season one and one season two episodes. And so it's just like you said, this is one of these great tropes that like you can do it from jump and it and it causes the conflict and it and it, it's easy to resolve within an episode because yeah, it comes from real life this isn't one of these we turned on the microwave and traveled back in time like this is a <laughs> real life dynamic that happens so let's get into it first show is bob newhart show season one episode five good night nancy now walk us through the Bob Newhart saga, because this guy has had many shows and he's a huge presence in the comedy and sitcom world, but a little before our time. Right. So, well, this is the Bob Newhart show. So this is the one from the early 70s. And um, this was his first kind of sitcom. He was already like well into middle age. He was already balding. He was, I mean, he had been an established comedian since I think, huge. like the 50s, right? Yes. Wasn't you would he listen in? to his records. Like our parents' generation would listen to his records, like or, George Carlin. Their parents' generation, because yeah. <laughs> he was in kind of in between. But this was his first sitcom, and it's him and Suzanne Plachette as his wife. And he, one of his big pushes in this is he never wanted it to be a family sitcom. He didn't want to be like the silly dad mm -hmm. um, character type. So that he never wanted to have kids. He wanted this sitcom to just be about a couple. Yeah. And that's what it remained. And so they are a couple that live in Chicago. She is a third grade teacher. He is a psychologist and they are navigating life as a, I guess, kind of they've, they've been married, they say, three years in this episode. And this is season one. So they haven't been married very long. Yeah. And this is definitely one of your classic sort of metropolitan right. sitcoms. Uh, the whole 
opening sequence is just heaven to me. That Cooper font, that great old-timey font that they use, and it's one of these commuting-to-work opens, which I just find very sort of cozy, showing him coming out of his apartment building and getting on the subway and just kind of making his way to work, just like we see Mr. Moore doing and his head-of-the-class intro the whole thing really puts you into that atmosphere of it's the 70s, it's Chicago, they live in this big high rise that they show you over and over again in these establishing shots. So it's like, make no mistake about it, you know, they're a little bit older, but this is very much a urban professional type of situation. That's right. And the joke about that open is that he he goes 55 miles out of his way on the train in order to get to his apartment, which is just a few blocks from where his office is, yeah. based on the establishing shots in no. Chicago. And Bob Newhart himself is from Chicago, so he always laughed about, you would never want to see a psychologist who couldn't find his own stop. Yeah, well, that's the case with any movie or TV show that's set in a city that you're familiar with. You're going, wait, how did they get from Chinatown to Harlem by that way? You right, know, just... exactly. So this episode starts with the wife and the friend coming into the apartment, they're bringing in a plant, they've got a special dwarf plant, and they get a call on the phone, right? We get the wife answering the phone, and it's Nancy, Bob's ex-girlfriend. Right. So Bob's ex-girlfriend, Nancy, is coming into town and would is has looked him up and would love to reconnect. And Emily... Bob's wife is so happy. She's like, oh, yes, I've heard a lot about you. Can't wait to meet you. Yes, we'd love to have dinner. And so then Bob comes home and she's, you know, Emily's all happy. She's like, you'll never guess who called. And he's like, no, I'm not playing the guessing game. And she's like, come on. Oh, fine. You're no fun. And hands him the message. And she was like, it's Nancy, your ex-girlfriend. She wants to have dinner. So what Bob does, like Emily's all excited that the girlfriend has called, you know, the ex-girlfriend has called and wants to get together. And Bob is like, well, I cannot act excited as though because my ex-girlfriend called because that will upset you. And I can't act too not excited because then you will think I was expecting the call. So I am just going to sit here and continue reading the paper about the buildings in Chicago. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, he says, I'm trained to react to people's emotions. Uh, yes, he's got a very measured, controlled way of behaving. And I was really interested going into this, what, what I was ultimately going to make of his personality, because he's famous for that delivery, right? right? Everybody knows Bob Newhart. He's all awkward and shy and stutters and stammers. But is this going to be one of those things where like, it turns out that he's kind of an asshole, like he's kind of a prick and he's sort of uh, arrogant or, or controlling or whatever. But what you find by the end of the episode is he's just another variation on George Jefferson. He's blustery and lacking in self-awareness and kind of thinks he's all that and doesn't quite get it. But it's disguised in this weird little, you know, awkward, nebbishy, stammery thing. The surprise to me, or like what I was sort of relieved to see, is that the show is kidding him, or like he's kidding right. himself. Right. And it's not about he's so smart and he sometimes has to deal with his annoying wife or something like that. It's like he is very much ultimately the butt of the joke the same way George Jefferson is, even if he, you know, he just takes a very different path to get there. Yes. Uh, the wife tells Bob, like, great news, your your ex-girlfriend called, and she's 
explaining it as like, oh, aren't you impressed that I'm so cool and that I'm not the kind of wife that gets upset when your ex-girlfriend calls? In fact, like I'll double down and arrange a date where we all hang out. And this is going to be a sort of recurring subtrope, I think, of the spouse trying to go above and beyond and be helpful and show how unjealous they are. Right, right. Well, and her reasoning was, I would love to see the girl that you broke up with right. for me. And then Bob was like, oh, no, that was Naomi. Yeah. And and she, and she Emily's like, what? And he's like, yeah, Nancy's the girl from college that I dated for a long time that I almost married. And, Su- and Suzanne Plachette is like, uh. Uh, Yeah, comical, (laughs) like weird face, and then, you know, cut to commercial. So this is apparently a very meaningful distinction to this Emily character, is that she was all on board when she thought this was the girlfriend that immediately preceded her in Bob's life, and he broke up with her for Emily. And now that she finds out that this was just one, someone back back in the stack somewhere. Yeah, someone further back that he that he really had feelings for that was a lot more serious than this Naomi in between woman. Yeah, which I, I I guess that makes sense. The whole thing to me again, it just seems a little sitcommy. Like the way she threw herself so passionately into this scenario of oh, this is great, ex girlfriend, sure, come on by, like. It just kind of seems like, yeah, you, you set yourself up for this. Maybe, you know, you didn't have all the information, obviously. So it just plays as like goofy a yeah. little bit. Well, and then we get to see her kind of eating those words, right? They're waiting at the hotel for because they were going to meet at this like hotel restaurant where Nancy and her husband are staying. And so they're sitting there waiting for Nancy and her husband to arrive. And, you know, Emily is like, do I look nice? Do, do you like my dress? Oh, you know, she's all nervous. Like it's a first date for her because she wants to look good. And then this woman walks by and and she's like, is that is that Nancy? And he's like, no, Nancy's much prettier than that woman. And she's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And they there's a whole bit where like some other couple comes who happens to be Doogie Howser's dad in like That's a right. rare sitcom guest role. And, you know, they're so nervous and awkward that they like basically carry on half of their dinner with this other random couple before they figure out it's not them. Like they're just everyone's everyone's nervous. Did you notice that he was was like, Emily, this is my wife, Nancy. When he introduced Emily to Nancy, it happened really quickly. He's like, oh, Nancy, good to see you. Emily, this is my wife, Nancy. No. And Emily goes and like just kind of steps back and gives a face. And Nancy just smiles because obviously it was a mistake. And then that's when the guy comes that he like grabs and shakes his hand really Mm -hmm. quickly to try to like cover up the fact that he just misspoke like that. Yeah. So yeah, eventually the real husband comes. And yeah, it's just this sort of tense, awkward thing. Uh, His his ex, Nancy, is this nice looking lady. She looks a little younger than him, but I guess they're they're contemporaries. And as they're making their way to the table, Nancy and Bob are just sort of, you know, talking privately. And she says something, you know, he says like, oh, well, you're, you know, Chuck or whatever her her husband is. Oh, he seems very nice. And she says, we're thinking of divorcing or I'm thinking of divorcing him. So it's just it's setting up this tension that like, oh, she's she's into Bob. She's going to try to like break up his marriage. Yeah, well, it's sort of. From that moment on, you kind of get 
the you get the idea that she's kind of a bad actor in terms of like she has set this up to if nothing else make her husband that she's not having good a good time with you know that they're having a a rough patch or whatever make him jealous she's overly flirting like at the dinner across the table so like the two women are sitting next to each other in one of these like round sort of semicircle booths and the men are sitting on the ends and nancy keeps leaning across emily and like putting her hand on bob's arm and and saying oh my you know my salad doesn't have any pepper on it you could try mine i have the same dressing as emily's but i know you don't like pepper bobby and like feeding him from across the table it was very it was it was inappropriate yeah it's all weird and awkward and bob newhart of course this is his whole thing is playing the awkwardness and uncomfortableness and so when she's reminiscing and you know waxing nostalgic about oh remember when we did this and that and he says you know i i don't think anyone else at the table wants to hear us reminisce trying to just sort of put an end to all of it so he says in this very sort of non-committal way oh you know why don't we why don't we just talk about this some other time and she's like great like lunch tomorrow and he's like uh, okay he, yeah he goes fine and then Suzanne again Emily looks at him like are you serious yeah it's a total like out of the frying pan into the fire kind of thing every time he tries to diffuse it it just gets worse and worse and so he's yeah literally planning a date with this woman that's feeding him at the table next to his wife like the whole situation is kind of spiraling Yes. And so then we like that kind of ends just with that little bit. Then we go to the office the next day. And of course, Carol and the uh, dentist suite mate both come into Bob's office. Like, how did it go? We want to know everything. And this is where we find out that Bob's kind of like, it was horrible. And I'm not looking forward to having lunch today. But also, I'm kind of really excited to have lunch today, because I get to be the one that breaks up with her. And, you know, I'm excited about that. And also, I'm really flattered that she's still into me, because I guess I still got it. And that was the part that was like George Jefferson, like, oh, yeah, yes. I still got it. Look at me. <laughs> yeah, this was what sort of unlocked his character to me is realizing, okay, this must be his sort of thing is that even though, like I said, he's so sort of quiet and shy and awkward, at the end of the day, he does think a lot of himself. And that's what makes him a fun sitcom character and what makes him, again, sort of the butt of the joke and puts him in the low status situation. So he does get back together with her. They go out to lunch. And uh, this is where it all sort of comes comes to light she says look my real motivation for for seeking you out was what to confirm that that i don't like you anymore no it was to see if either a it would light a fire under her husband's ass to get him to be more attentive or whatever she was trying to get him to be or b it would like rekindle something so then she would know she was ready to move on Mm -hmm. and maybe with Bob but not necessarily because he's married but maybe you never know she was definitely out there looking for that like the soft landing people talk about getting us when you come out of a a long relationship or a marriage or whatever that you have someone who's like whose arms that you're going to fall into and that's what she was looking for right and a litmus test basically you're saying like she's looking for answers but vis-a-vis her and her husband exactly bob is kind of incidental 
And so, yeah, that's that's the sitcom comeuppance. That's him kind of learning like, oh, gee, you know, it was kind of fun for a, for a minute there when I thought that I had this dilemma of these two women, you know, both pining over me. And he even says to her, he's like, you know, I'm really you you told me once again that you're not in love with me and you always do it over the salad. And I was really looking forward to being able to tell you that mm-hmm. same thing. And I didn't get to say it. And she's like, oh, Bobby. Yeah. So I guess this is something that's going to recur in a different way in the later episodes, this thing of like, we didn't end it properly the first time or somebody still got like a resonating uh, resentment or something because they don't feel like they got the proper closure or, or they haven't gotten over the rejection or whatever. So this ends with Bob going back to Emily and saying it was quite possibly the most awkward, uncomfortable lunch I ever had. And Emily has this big smile and that's it, right? It's just like, I guess the sort of function of this, like you said, this is still kind of early in the show. And I feel like this is another, like, as a couple, these are, you know, some of the challenges that you're going to face, right? Right. The, The ex calling, That's one of them, you know? That's right, because there was no Facebook stalking at the time. If you were just casually interested to see what your ex was up to, you had to look him up. Yeah, well, and again, this is definitely a real-life trope where you just have to think, sure, it happens in any different ways, but over the course of a relationship in 1972, yeah, something like this would happen once in a while. And yeah, you have that curiosity factor. We talked about this with the Class Reunions episode, that you know, in in the modern world doesn't really exist anymore. But in the 70s, just like, man, I just kind of want to know what they look like. Yeah, you know? for sure. All right. Moving on to Coach. Season one, episode eight, Parents Weekend. Yeah. So Coach is very much of our time. We definitely have no excuses in that vein in terms of not being familiar with it. But I have to say, if there was a show that was designed... <laughs> To not appeal to me at the age I was when this came on, right? Probably, I was probably like 10 to 15 or something when this was airing. You know, I've talked before about how when I was younger, if there weren't any kids in the show, it didn't really appeal to me. Shows about grownups. And that it's called Coach and it's all about sports. Oh my God, you're saying that I have to go to gym class again when I come home and watch TV? Like, yeah, this this was just not my thing. Not up your alley at all. Well, we definitely watched this show. I think it was one of these family shows. I think it was definitely one that we kind of all sort of sat around and watched. You know, my, my family's really into sports and football yeah. in particular. And I grew up in the South. And so college football is everything. And so, yeah, this was definitely a watchable one for us. The other draw for this is that you have Shelley Fabre, who is um, like a teen idol heartthrob from the 1960s who plays the girlfriend and then later wife in the series. And she is, I mean, that was like, you know, talk about one of the girls that my dad and my mom were like, thought were, you know, thought were so cool or whatever. She sings Johnny Angel, mm-hmm. How I Love Him. Oh, really? Yeah, that's her. Hmm. And so she was like a little kid star. She was a little kid on Donna Reed, on the Donna Reed show. And then she went on to um, have, a, you know, like a Disney kind of star, you know, went from the kid star stuff to the pop star stuff. And then had did some movies where she was like trying to be an adult, like the sexy surf comedies of the 60s. 
Yeah, I didn't really know who she was beyond this. I think Craig T. Nelson, the star of the show, has a very peculiar career. He's the star of the movie Poltergeist, which is beloved, you know, Steven Spielberg produced horror movie from the 80s. You know, really one of the just really one of the best examples of that early 80s Amblin Spielberg vibe. And then he was in this show. He's the voice of Mr. Incredible in the Incredibles oh, movies, yeah, that's which right. are also like super successful. Like, it's just sort of an odd career path, you know? Like, I don't think Craig T. Nelson is anybody's favorite actor, <laughs> you know? Maybe uh, his wife or his kids or something. But he did a handful of these really kind of important things. Yeah, big things. Um, and then we've got Jerry Van Dyke, who is sure. hilarious. You know, Dick Van Dyke's brother, lots of fun there. Um, so it's a fun cast and, and another one of these couple shows kind of like the Bob Newhart show. This may be our coziest lineup ever. I mean, between that that opening for Newhart and then this this cabin that they live in, it's just so nice. Like that big fireplace and all the wooden interiors. I just really like the the vibe of this show. But so okay, the premise for this is gonna be he has uh, uh, older teenage daughter, I guess, that's starting college. He's got an ex-wife, right? Like you said, that woman, the actress you were talking about, that's his current lover. His, yeah, uh, his girlfriend. His girlfriend. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, but I guess he has this, well, I, I was going to say amicable, but I guess it's not that amicable because they haven't really seen each other in a long time. I don't know. He has an ex-wife that he has this kid with, and they're going to have to, you know, sort of be be together, be in touch for the first time in a while because of the daughter's parents' week in the college. Right. So this is season one of the show, and the setup for this show, he is long divorced. They've been divorced for 16 years. His daughter is like a freshman in college, and so she was about two when right. they divorced. She has been raised by their mother, by her mother, somewhere else, not in Minnesota, because he he's a college football coach and he used to coach for Chattanooga, which is in Tennessee. He coached for a fictional school there and then um, moved to this school. And so she and her mom, his daughter and his ex-wife lived somewhere else. And he was he was going where the job was. So his daughter in the very first episode or or so decides that she is going to go to Minnesota State to be closer to her dad, that she's only ever grown up with him on like holidays you know, or summer vacations because they have not lived close. And so this is like, Part of the premise of the show right. is that he's getting to know his daughter and getting to know how to be kind of a dad, but a dad of an adult. And and he's having to grapple with all the weird feelings yes. of that because it's like, wait a minute, she's my little girl, but no, wait, she's 18 and she's a college student and I and I coach these football boys and I know that they're allowed to this and but my and so that's a lot of like the center tension of the show. Gotcha. Yeah, it's like three men and a baby, except it's one man and a grown woman. 
woman. Sort of, but, <laughs> so not at all like three men and a baby. Good comparison, but Jay. But still that same sort of like, oh, I guess I'm a dad. Huh, what's this like? like yeah, yeah, sort of. But um, so, so yeah, so he hasn't seen his wife, you know, in, in years. What they were saying was, I guess they hadn't done like a, like an in-person exchange of the child in a very long time because she's been, you know, able to travel by herself between their two homes. So what we find out is while they've been divorced for 16 years, he hasn't seen her for about three years. And he's telling Christine, his girlfriend, that, you know, the last time he saw her, she was a bit overweight and Christine doesn't have anything to worry about and all of that. Yeah, this all starts just like Newhart with a phone call. But this time, instead of the spouse or the girlfriend picking it up, it's it's coach himself, Craig T. Nelson. And so we hear him talking to the wife or the ex-wife. And what's so upsetting to Christine is he's he's not mentioning her. You know, he's saying, oh, what am I doing? I'm, I'm cleaning fish. You know, like it's clear that he's sort of casually omitting her existence when talking to the ex. Right, because they were actually making pancakes together on a Sunday morning. Right. And so that's what incites this little sort of argument after the phone call between the coach uh, Hayden and and the girlfriend Christine and part of his way of sort of placating her is that age old thing. Oh, don't worry, she's fat. <laughs> yeah, you are. Well, so Christine's whole thing is that they have kind of a casual weekend relationship. She lives in the big city. She's an anchor, and she has you know weekends off because she's like their weeknight anchor. And she comes down to the country on the weekends and spends the time with him after his game on Saturday. So. So when he's in town on Saturdays and not traveling with the team, then they she comes down Saturday and they spend Saturday night and Sunday together. And that is like their sort of casual relationship that they have going on. Well, she, you know, Christine is a little put out that she's not being mentioned, but like you said, is not really placated, but he's trying to placate her with the like, oh, don't worry about it. Because the mom, this ex-wife is going to come for parents weekend to see the daughter. And so she's like, hey, you know, we should get dinner for parents weekend. And Christine is like, you should definitely do that. But you also should maybe not hide the fact that you have a girlfriend from your ex-wife that you've been divorced from for 16 years. She knows you date. Yeah. And Hayden's answer is sort of like, it's mostly just flattery and just like, oh, you're so sexy, don't worry about it. And a little bit of that, like, well, we need to be nice to her. You know, we need to be aware of her feelings because she's lonely and obese. And, you know, this is all it. It's not you. It's just that, you know, I'm just trying to be mindful for her. Right. And they don't we don't ever find out like what their divorce was about, Mm -hmm. but it definitely was, I mean, we can very much tell from the way the actress who plays the ex-wife acts and the way Hayden is acting that this was like, he just left her with a two-year-old. So Christine is not satisfied with any of this. She's uncomfortable with the whole situation. And her solution is to go to the school in disguise, basically to like bundle up in a big parka or something and sort of sneak around I guess she wants to just kind of like do a little reconnaissance and just kind of like catch a glimpse of of what this ex-wife, what she looks like, what, what her vibe is with Hayden. I think her yeah. plan is to like 
just kind of peek through a window or around a corner or something and just just get a sense of what the deal is and then be on her way. And that's what she says. She gets caught by Jerry Van Dyke's character and she's like, hey, I just want to I just want to see how they act with each other because yeah. I, I, you know, I don't have a good idea and he's being secretive. So I'd like to just kind of see and then I'll be on my way. But of course, you know, it's a situation comedy. So she gets caught and then um, not by Hayden because Jerry Van Dyke's character like hides her behind a door and then they're able to like scooter out the back door before he finds her. Yeah. And so we do finally get to meet the the woman, the ex-wife. We get the daughter. She comes in and it's this sort of like the daughter comes in to like clear the room for the mom. It'd be like, okay, okay. She wanted to make sure there are no extraneous people. Okay. If everyone's ready, I now present my mom, your ex-wife. And they like really make a meal of it. This woman coming in, perfectly normal, attractive woman. I don't know. You would think like naked Marilyn Monroe just walked into the room or something. Both Luther and Hayden are just like dumbfounded at the beauty before them. Well, okay. So another thing you may not know. So Luther and Hayden have been a coaching partnership for a very long time. So Luther knows her. Right. And she was heavier the last time they all saw her and angrier probably the last time they all saw her. And so, yeah, when this very different looking happy woman walks in the room, they are surprised. That's what I took it as. But also she does look good. Like good No, she looks good. The other thing is that Kelly, the daughter, is clearing the room and is coming to look ahead because Kelly knows about Christine. And Kelly is close with her mom. So her mom knows about Christine as well. And so that's what Kelly was like looking out for. But it still comes off as like when Prince Ali is presented in Aladdin or something. Like there's just this whole like everybody make way. Make way way." (laughs) for Prince Ali. So what happens? They they go to a restaurant. I guess the the three of them, right? Hayden, the daughter, and Beth all go go out to dinner. But then we find out that Christine, the girlfriend, didn't drive back to Minnesota like she said she was going to. She's still there in her weird, you know, Kenny from South Park uh, parka, spying on them more. Yeah, she can't quite get herself together to actually leave. So she goes to the restaurant where she knows they're going to have dinner and is hoping to just sit unnoticed at the bar in her big parka with the hood up. But of course, she is a famous anchor woman and is immediately recognized. Then the guy who recognizes her announces to the entire restaurant, hey, everybody, we've got a celebrity in our midst. And so, of course, Hayden hears this. And then Christine has to turn around and kind of like wave sheepishly. And so then he is like, what are you doing here? And then she's like, uh, and they run off into the coat check room to have a conversation. Yeah, this is where I noticed there's a little bit of a strange point of view issue with this story i feel like not totally but it's just like this is so much christine's story you know in a way yes. like she's the one that has to sort of come to terms with with everything and figure out where she stands and i guess we do get a lot of her point of view but it still seems you know maybe just because it's coach like we're still getting more of of hayden and his side of the story and it just sort of seems like 
Like, that's irrelevant. Like, I want to see, like, what happened with Christine that made her change her mind and decide to go to the to the lodge or the restaurant. And then she had to wait around that whole time for them to come. You know, like, there's just a weird thing where it's like she's the one that really has all of the thinking and growth and worrying to do. And our point of view is primarily with Hayden, who's just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's a little weird. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, but I think that's kind of interesting, though, because it's hard to show what you're describing, that like internal conflict of like, I know I'm being the needy girlfriend right now. And I but I can't help it. Like, well, I just I need I, I, I need to be there. And so that's what we get with Luther, her talking through with him. Right. We do get to see a little bit of that. And then later on at the end, when she does explain it all to Hayden, and I think that's the payoff, right? Because if she gets in her car and is driving, all we could see is like that play on her face. You yeah, know what of I course. Mean? I'm just pointing out that she She's the one that's behaving more strangely and having this like more intense emotional journey. And so it just struck me as odd at that point that we're still sort of grounded in Hayden's point of view. Yeah, well, and I think it's that she is the thing in his life that's that's asking, you know, by her behavior is asking him to do be different, yeah. to do something different. And if she had just been like, whatever, I don't care, then he would have just been like, whatever, I don't care. And but because at the end where she's like, look, we've had this sort of casual thing, but clearly, I don't feel as casually as I thought right. I did. And by by not being able to like, just let this go. And by acting the way that I've acted, I'm now out on a limb in terms of like my feelings for you. And I would like to know if you're interested in reciprocating those feelings and come out on this limb with me. <laughs> yeah, what, what she's sort of saying is that this episode, you know, as Bart Simpson said, that episode of our lives. This episode of my life has made me realize that like I I care more than I thought I did or I'm more invested than I thought I was and that there's a disparity here that we have to work out. But before we get there cuz there, there's a lot going on back in the restaurant we have Beth's side of the story, what her motivation was, because this is a little bit of a mirror image of the Bob Newhart thing. She was seeking closure or some sort of like confirmation of, of the way she like this was some sort of litmus test for her also. He says something like, when did all this happen? Like, when did you lose the weight? Like, when did all that? And she was like, well, it kind of started six months ago when Kelly decided to go here and I knew there was going to be a parents weekend. And he says, so you did this for me? And she's like, no, I did it for me. But because I had to like, I had to feel good and feel confident and know that I could walk in to any situation and be happy with that. Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, where like, the idea of wanting to look good in front of your ex is sort of like fundamentally unhealthy and not really a good motivation. But it's also one of those things that like, yeah, once in a while, you know, you, you got to just use what you got, you know, like sometimes those motivations can can help, you know, sometimes a little bit of vanity or spite, you know, if that gives you the extra oomph to, to be motivated to, to exercise yeah. or whatever. Well, like whatever it is, I, I think about that. I think that there's, shoo, I mean, as long as you're not doing it to get your ex back, that's the unhealthy right. part. If 
it, or like doing it to like see, haha, you're so jealous. You know, mm-hmm. it's, as long as it's not in the negative, as long as it's just like, oh, I want you to be like, damn, she looks good. Hell yeah, I'm gonna do that. I I think about that when I go home for the holidays. I'm like, oh, I want to look good when I go home for the holidays. Not because there's anybody there who I'm like, oh, I want to make you jealous, but because I just want people to be like, Amy looks really good. Yeah. I haven't seen her in a year. Yeah. So she sort of explains like, I guess I kind of owe it to you. Like, I don't really want anything from you, but just the sort of specter of having to see you again, you know, helped me get back into shape. And yeah, in terms of the Christine and Hayden side of it, it sort of ends with with Christine saying like, well, what I need for you at a bare minimum is to know that that after having experienced this, you have no regrets about leaving Beth, right? That at least you still prefer me to the ex-wife. And he's like, of course, <laughs> you know, it, that was never, she does let him off the hook a little easy, right? She lays it all out there. Like I've gone out on this limb. I'd like to hear from you. And he gets up and walks away and like goes and stands at the door and is like gazing out at the views, uh, you know, outside the window of his cabin and doesn't say anything, which it's like, oh, it's kind of heartbreaking. You're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then, and then she gives him like an easy out and is like, well, I mean, at least this is what I guess I'm really asking. And he says, and he says, of course, and there's more. Do you want to hear more? And she's like, no, that's okay. That's enough. And I'm like, no, the hell it's not okay. That's not enough. He's got more. You shut up and let him say it. Yeah. What was the more? He didn't say it. End of show. She but says, no, that's fine. Was? He was going to say, you know, how he felt about her. Like, she got so embarrassed about her own actions that she was, like, trying to let him off the hook easy and then got nervous that he might reject her. So she was trying to give him an easy out. And in doing so, he gets to be the fucking white man again. Like, never have to do anything or say anything kind. Like, the most passive person in a relationship ever. I'm like, no! But he says, oh, but there's more. Let him say more! Let the man be nice to you. Yeah. Well, you know, they need to they need to stretch it out, right? I'm <laughs> sure we'll have plenty of future coach episodes where where Hayden gradually learns to express himself. So yeah, in terms of tracking the trope, I mean definitely just on the most broad level, another like, here's a couple, here's a sort of potential stumbling block. And in this one, they're even more sort of explicit about this brought out this this maybe difference of opinion or this made me realize this situation and now it's going to help us take a step forward. Yeah, I mean, I think in the first one, in, in the Bob Newhart show, the impetus for the visit in the first place was the ex-girlfriend kind of wanting to like figure something out in her own relationship. And in this one, the the end result was that the main couple figured something out in their relationship. Yeah, I guess the difference between this and a lot of the others was this was sort of going to happen no matter what, because it's parents weekend. So like, they don't have to get together. But it's not like, oh, hey, I have an idea. It's more like, all right, well, you know, I guess the time has come, I'm put in this situation. And so, you know, it's different in that way. Right. It wasn't a surprise. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on to home improvement. Season 2, episode 22, X marks the spot. Yep. So we've talked about home improvement before. This was one that, you know, I kind of feel like we watched because it was on, right? Neither of us, I think, are the biggest Tim Allen fans, but I definitely 
watched my share of this in the 90s. I feel like they slotted it in between Seinfeld and something else, or it just, they were always putting it in places in the lineup, I feel like, where it was kind of presented to me and I didn't avoid it. Yeah, I think this was an ABC show. So it was probably on with all these other, you know, ABC um, style shows that were had a bunch of kids in them. And, yeah. you know, but yeah, definitely. Um, I think my favorite thing always about this show was Wilson. <laughs> Sure. Well, and my favorite thing is Al. I think he's very sexy. And (laughs) this particular episode begins with Tim and Al doing their tribute, their salute to stripping, right? This was a recurring joke on the show. They would always do, this is our salute to, you know, whatever, some aspect of hardware. Some some sexual innuendo having to do with carpentry or um, building a car or something. And so it's the salute to stripping and Tim pulls down a big sort of like poster and it's like a photoshopped Al on like a bikini model, basically. Yes. yes. And then know. Al gets embarrassed and tries to get rid of it. And Tim has another one right behind it. And so then he runs off the set. Yeah, good stuff. And then we get into our customary uh, home improvement intro. Now, one random observation I'll throw out there. Do the Taylors have the worst hair per capita of any family on TV? You could have called this show Three Mullets and a Perm. That's my alternate title. There is no reason. There is no reason for that older son to look like he is like he belongs to Hulk Hogan. Like (laughs) the fact that that child did not grow up to go into wrestling of some kind is shocking to me. Yes, I will never understand the mullet on that kid. Yeah, the kid have mullets jill at least in this era a very attractive woman has that marcy darcy bonsai tree curly hair short bob that comes right below her ears the irony is tim mr caveman guy is the only one with a decent haircut he looks good and al al borland is like the only one who's got a style bob vila style that is classic yeah we're, we're fully on board with that so Walk us through the setup for this one. So Tim and Al are at a restaurant, bar, whatever, after their show. Oh, could I just pause one second and say this bar scene was like directed by Paul Thomas Anderson or something. Did you notice the way it starts on yes. what we would call background artists, except they're in the foreground, yes. this random couple toasting drinks, and then the camera like glides over their table and, you know, gently reaches Tim and Al talking at this bar. Like it's, it was cool, but it's almost like out of place in this world. They were just really going for it with the cinematography on this. Yep. So yeah, they're doing like a postmortem on the show and and talking about, you know, probably planning the next one. But um, a woman comes into the bar and she is, well, she was standing at the telephone, the pay telephone, and Al notices her looking at their table. And so he kind of stands up and is like, oh, that woman is checking me out. Oh, oh, oh look at that. I think, uh, I think she she might recognize me from TV. Oh, what do you think? And Tim turns around and immediately turns back and it's like, oh my God, that's, you know, Stacy or whatever her name is, my high school girlfriend. Ah, don't let her see us. Don't let her see us. And he's like, too late, you know, um, I think. And, and so then she's continuing her phone conversation and Tim explains to Al that 
he never really broke up with her because Jill, he was he went away to college and he started seeing Jill, but Jill wouldn't get serious with him unless he broke up with his high school girlfriend that he was sort of still kind of stringing along and dating on the weekends or whatever when he would go home. And so he tells Jill that he did break up with her and just never called her again. Yeah. Ghosted, right? That he was ghosting before it was a thing. Uh, yeah, like I said, this is kind of a recurring subtrope in some of these. Uh, the relationship did not end in a satisfactory way, and there's all this unresolved stuff. So yeah, this woman sits down with them, right? Like Al invites her over, and, and they're all talking. We get another instance of good intentions or innocent personalities sort of creating problems because yeah. Al just starts volunteering Tim to, you know, have her over or she said, you know, the, the woman says something like, oh, I, I'm so curious to meet your wife. And Al is like, well, why don't you go meet her? You know, like Al is just all of a sudden facilitating all this stuff that Tim does not think is a good idea. Right. Well, so she's like, oh, you know, we should I have to run. I have to meet this realtor. Oh, you're looking for a house. Yeah, it's in this neighborhood. Al's like, that's Tim's neighborhood. It's right around the corner. If you want to meet Jill, you should just stop by. And Tim's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, yeah. no. And so, but that is what happens. Um, and she, that is like, Tim is is right in this situation, right? Like Al is normally, whenever they're on duty, right? Al's function is always to be the smart one and Tim is the idiot. But I feel like this is one of those situations where in their personal lives, Al is actually being the dummy, right? Like Tim is right to think this is a bad idea. Yeah, I got the impression that Al was doing it, number one, to kind of get Tim's goat. And number two, because he wanted, he was kind of interested in Stacy and maybe wanted to like stop by, which hmm. is what he does to see her again. So Tim comes home from work and we have another sort of lie of omission situation because, you know, Jill is like, what happened at work today? Oh, nothing, nothing interesting. Oh, really? So you didn't run into your ex-girlfriend? So I just wanted to stop for a second. Like, I'm sure we talked a little bit about this before. I was thinking about Tim and Jill in this sort of spectrum we're always talking about, about these sitcom couples and how, you know, of course there's always going to be strife and conflict. That's why it's a sitcom. But how in the 90s it starts to get kind of toxic and you have some of these shitty shows that start, like, instead of reflecting the natural angst that we all have once in a while, just start, like, teaching us how to be horrible people. Tim and Jill, I feel like, is one of the examples of, like, they kind of get it right, but pave the way for shows that get it wrong, right? Like, I think it's a pretty strong aspect of this show that that actress that plays Jill is very good at playing that sort of dignified annoyance, kind of like Alex P. Keaton's dad. She's very good at sort of showing her chagrin. And we always get the sense that Tim is just in the tradition of George Jefferson and all these other ones. He's a bumbling idiot dad. And, you know, their dynamic of... Being at each other's throats, but not really. And like, I think all of that works. And yet I see this as a very clear step in the direction of those, those more toxic ones that we don't like. 
I see to me Patricia Richardson and Patricia Heaton and uh Leah Remini are all the same character just as all of their men are the same character. They are these sort of like silly dad trope like we talked about with Bob Newhart not wanting to be that and these are the wives that are sort of constantly rolling their eyes and it's like none of their wives ever have anything nice to say about them about their men they because they can't because they are the silly you know silly dad guy kind of dumb right always messing things up a little too blustery a little too like high on their own shit but then what that means is then the wife becomes this sort of like harpy kind of woman who only says kind of mean things about her husband and is always sort of rolling her eyes and whatever. And that that dynamic, I think, is toxic. And I think it doesn't pave the way. I think it already is. I could see that. I guess there's some... It's funny how a lot of times our conversations about this tend to boil down to like, I'm I'm more impressed at the way the individual conflicts are fleshed out, you know, and I think that home improvement was usually good about that, that the focus, whatever they were disagreeing about, tended to be the crux of the episode, the main story. And they gave her, if nothing else, they just gave her lots of screen time and lots to do. And maybe that the way that actress played it just works better for me. Maybe the fact that it's just a little earlier than some of those other shows, so it feels a little fresher. For whatever reason, maybe I'm I'm letting it off the hook when I shouldn't, but I just feel like, again, by the end of the episode, I never get the sense that she was portrayed as, like, annoying or anything. No. I get the sense that she's she's maybe got the unfortunate role of having to always be the defender of common sense and (laughs) safety and stuff like that. No, but I think what you're saying with this show is the same thing that you said when we watched Everybody Loves Raymond. And it's the same thing that you said about King of Queens. Like you're noticing that within in each individual episode, if you take them as singular instances, there is a central conflict that is pretty true to an actual marriage, sort of most of the time, and that there is a way that it's dealt with. The problem I have with all of these shows is that what you're talking about is every sing- it's every single episode. So when you zoom out of it, who is this person? Like who is the husband? Who is the wife? They're flat. They're nobody. They they are themselves a trope. And so yeah. there's they they aren't real. So they can't possibly be having real conversations right here and now. And that is like I think the most real conversations that happen on uh, home improvement are between Wilson and Tim or Al and Tim yeah, or the mom and the kids. Yeah. I think I agree with, with a lot of that, especially the way that, again, like when we talk about the way at this time, the shows are always from the point of view of the white man that is at the center of it. And so, yeah, they all exist in relation to him. And so if it's like, well, a big part of who I am is I do these crazy dangerous things that don't make any sense and piss off my wife, then yeah, her role is going to be, I always get pissed off. And uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I guess what I'm just saying is, A, the actors do a good job with it. And to an extent, the writers do, like I always say, do a good job with fleshing out the individual scenarios. But the point is well taken that 
it's it's still kind of a shitty way of characterizing the whole thing that doesn't really change until we get the sitcoms that are actually from women or other voices. It also kind of, you said a similar thing about Coach, where it's like, why are we focusing on his perspective when yeah. the woman was the one who had the much more interesting journey mm-hmm. in that show, but asked and answered, right? Because the show is called Coach, it is his vehicle, and that's, we're going to be telling the stories from that perspective. I don't know. I guess we'll, to a certain extent, agree to disagree about Tim and Jill. Definitely not the ideal relationship for for (laughs) anyone to be modeling after. So it all kind of comes out. I don't know. Is this when the kids come in with the yearbook? Yes. This was a funny scene. The kids are giving Tim so much shit for having an ex-girlfriend just in the same way that they would give each other shit for like liking a girl. They're like, ooh, dad. Oh, hey, mom. Look, she's hot. She's a babe. Look at her mom. Oh, my gosh. What are you going to do? And the mom's like, everyone's a babe at 17. Well, I noticed that, again, there's the emphasis on weight, right? Because they one of the kids says, specifically she's skinny mom and the mom says oh it's easy to be skinny when you're 17 or something so and then they read what she wrote in the yearbook where she calls him like her love love muffin muffin, right and so then of course the boys are just teasing their dad like hey love muffin when the doorbell rings they go go answer the door love muffin and uh (laughs) yeah and it's stacy like she shows up on her way to go see this realtor she stops by before she goes to see the realtor So she's there and they get to chatting on the couch. Tim has to go outside and help the boys because they're, you know, hurting each other. other. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to point out Tim yells at Mark for letting Brad sit on him. Like the one, the older boy is sitting on the younger boy and he's like, yeah, yeah, get off, kind of pushes him off. And he's like, well, next time, don't let him sit on you. But (laughs) great parenting. (laughs) Yeah. But then he, he talks to, to Randy. I, I, think I'm remembering all this right. Randy's the middle one, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and says, uh, you know, I don't think it's a good idea that those two ladies are in there talking about me. They're going to start making up stupid stories about me. Yeah, they're going to. And he's like, oh, um, dad, you know, he's like, dad, they look like they're having a good time or whatever. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. If they were talking about me, they'd be laughing. And then uh, uproarious laughter. And so, oh, no, I got to go in and whatever. So he goes in and they've Jill has now realized or is about to hear the story that she didn't know that Tim never actually broke up with Stacy and lied to Jill about it. Yeah. And then how does Al get involved? Al just shows up. I think Al kind of was hoping that this would be true. So he comes over to pick up the helium tank that Jill had borrowed to fill up the balloons for the Cub Scout or Boy Scout meeting. And, um, oh, look, Jill, uh, Stacy just happens to be there. How exciting. Oh, you're going to meet with the realtor and see this house? Well, Al's an expert on carpentry, so you should take Al with you. So then they go off together to look at this house together so he can help her know whether or not it's a a fixer-upper or or a a goodbye. Right. So we get Al and Stacy paired off, and then we get Tim and Jill having the conversation. And this is where we get the super gender rolls-y type stuff that Tim Allen is famous for, where Jill says women need closure, 
Which again, like she's just as wrapped up in this men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of attitude. You know, that's just in the DNA of this show. Oh, it's in the DNA of the 90s. That's It's true. And then he goes off on his whole thing, talking in the funny voice, going like, I'm a woman, I'm annoying, I'm so dumb. Just like really just laying into that like, yes. I don't know. Because he says it's not closure. You just want to like have really long conversations and drag everything out. Out, even if the relationship is already over, which I tend to agree, unfortunately, with Tim here. Well, yes and no. You, <laughs> What he's saying is true. Like, we don't need to talk about this a lot. And yeah, like maybe some people talk more than necessary, but you wouldn't agree with the way that he broke no, up with her. No, he needs, well, he didn't break up with her. He exactly. just ghosted her, right? So like he absolutely needs to, you know, have some courage and call and have a hard conversation, right? What he, in the way that he's saying, oh, I'm such a man, I'm such a man, but yet also being conflict avoidant when it has to do with an emotional conflict, that always like boggles my mind because it takes more courage, more guts, more fucking balls, as they say, to to have a hard emotional <laughs> conflict conversation than it does to just be like, man, I don't like you and punch somebody in the face. Yes, because traditional masculinity is fake. Like you're just <laughs> bumping up against like it has nothing to do with real courage or anything. All of that stuff is bullshit. It's, it's bullshit. just stupid construction that we made. Uh, so yeah, of course he uh, doesn't have any familiarity with real communication or confronting his feelings or anything like that. I think he could make the point that, yeah, that's what I should have done back then. It's still kind of pointless to really get into it now. But sure, I, I think he owes her, like, you know, just acknowledge, yeah, that was really shitty. Yeah, which he isn't, right? He is he is not acknowledging that he did a dumb thing in the past. He's just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. So, you know, Jill tells him that he was dumb and he's like, whatever, it's dumb that women want to talk so much. And then he goes to Wilson and they have like trading quotes conversation. I don't know if this had ever happened before, but this made me laugh when Wilson says, oh, you know, Confucius said whatever. And then Tim has his own quote and he goes, oh, but didn't Bartholomew so-and-so say, I never regret what I did not say. And Wilson's reaction when he's like, oh, okay. Like that, that Tim had his own rebuttal quote. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. And it was all about like lies of omission and what's a lie and whether like right. when the truth is the right thing to do or when it's okay to not tell the truth. Yeah. That's what all these like kind of famous quotes and famous sort of proverbs are about. And so, yeah, it's great. And then Wilson wins three to two. Five he, to four. Oh, it's five to four. Goes, My bad. Yeah, yeah, we get nine quotes back and forth until Tim runs out. Uh, but yeah, that was very funny. What is Wilson's ultimate advice here? I feel like this was not one that really hinged on Wilson's wisdom. No, but it was, it was, uh, he was giving Tim advice on what you didn't tell Jill is the problem. It's that you didn't tell Jill after all these years that you had lied to her. That you had lied to her about not having really broken up with right. the other girl. Right. That makes sense. But I would say from here on, 
the story sort of switches, right? Because right. now Stacy calls for Al's info. She's interested in Al. Yeah, they and- went to the house and they had like a two-hour date afterwards. They went out and had drinks and it seemed like they, you know, had a good time, at least from her perspective. Right. And again, I agree with Tim when he says, this is a bad idea. He says, like, I don't want this. You know, I don't. I, we shouldn't have, this is just, you know, uh, shitting where you eat, uh, mixing your metaphors, whatever you want to say. Like, I don't like the idea of Al canoodling with my ex-girlfriend. Right. And of course, Jill is like, no, later for you. I think this is great. And, you know, encourages it. Yeah. She was like, Al seemed interested. I And I like her and she might move into the neighborhood. And so whatever. It seems fine to me. Let's just like bygones are bygones. Let's be friends with this woman who might live down the street and maybe that Al likes. And so she sets up, Jill sets up a double date for them yeah. um, without consulting Tim or Al and Tim is kind of like waving her off telling her not to do it but then Tim goes to work the next day and is like hey we're going out to lunch today me and you and Jill and Stacy and Al's like oh I I can't go yeah now I was genuinely thrown off by this and this story didn't go where I thought it would and I'm a little baffled i guess by by the motivations here so al just says straight up she's not my type like i i kind of changed my mind like i'm i'm not interested in yeah they her. had a they had a short kind of first date sort of a thing ish and yeah he's like nah that was it was nice she but it was she seems like a friend not a you know, lover, right. Jay. <laughs> what I thought was that the reason he's not interested in her was because she's Tim's ex. To me, that would be a relatable sitcom-y thing that he likes her, but that's the stumbling block is I can't be like Tim's sloppy seconds. You know, oh, wow. I can't. No, he didn't even have that reasoning. No, exactly. That never entered into it. But that was something that I kind of related to personally. And I thought like that, that's a good place for this story to go as it is we never find out why al doesn't like her and it ends up being to me kind of cruel on this woman it just sort of ends up like this is a character that these two guys at two different times in their life in their lives just weren't interested in for no reason we get other than like she just doesn't have the zhuzh you know yeah well what al says is that he feels about her like it's like hanging out with his sister that she's very nice but he just doesn't have romantic feelings and i thought that was him just kind of being euphemistic and polite because he didn't want to say i got weirded out that she was Tim's. Oh, ex. that's interesting. No, I didn't read any in, anything of that into that. I just heard. I, I mean, I, I, to me, this was just a straight down the middle. Like, right. I'm just not interested. And so he didn't want to go have another date with her. And he hadn't. He hadn't set one up. He had done what is a perfectly reasonable thing to do after a first date, which is just to not have a second. Right. Right. And unfortunately, his friends got involved and set him up on a second date. That now he's like, I'm not going to go. But now Tim is in this weird, awkward position of knowing that he is either going to have to lie and say, sorry, Al's busy and just like kick that can down the road. 
but then when he shows up or, or that he couldn't come or whatever, but then when he shows up to the lunch, Jill and Stacy are like, oh, you know, I really want Al to call. Oh, Al's definitely going to call. Don't you think so, Tim? Yeah, he's going to call. So they like put him in this position of having to say that he, that Al likes Stacy more than he does. And then Al's like, oh, he shows up. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I shouldn't have put Tim in the position of telling you that I wasn't interested in you. I should just come here myself and tell me, tell you I wasn't interested in you. To which this woman is like sitting at the table like, yeah. God, that, that is weird. Wow, that's harsh. Like, thank you. But also, damn. Like, And again, I'm going to leave now. And then Jill's like, we're all adults. It doesn't have to be awkward. Let's sit here and eat. The fuck? No. Yeah. That's what I mean by, like, without that extra motivation, this does just come across as as just piling onto this woman character. And, you know, for all the reasons that we said before, it all boils down to this is for the benefit of and from the point of view of our, you know, central male character. And he has to learn to, like you were saying, have a little backbone and be more confrontational, as it were, and not weasel out of things and just tell people what they want to hear and ghost everybody or like, you know, ghost by proxy with Al. He just needs to be more of a straight shooter. And so again, this lady gets all bummed out so that he can learn that. But that's the thing. He doesn't. Because when presented with the opportunity to change his ways, he does the same thing. He doesn't he doesn't tell the truth. He just sort of tries to like get through the situation and hopes that it'll go away and, you know, be brushed under the rug. And so in my mind, it would have been better if this happened earlier in the episode so that we then can get to see him by the end of the episode, have a deep conversation with Jill or, or have a realization with Wilson or have something happen with his kids where he has to like get them to do something that he hasn't done, right? We should allow him to grow, but the, but instead we didn't like, instead it was written where it was just like, this lady gets dumped on. Tim gets like, man, you didn't learn a lesson. Okay, everybody, let's just sit down and eat and we'll pretend like it's not awkward. End credits. No, I think it's supposed to be that he learned it for next time. No, he didn't. He absolutely did not. I think that's the intention is that this whole catastrophe happens again because he was so non-confrontational. And uh, yeah, he just has to like... Try try harder next time. <laughs> I don't know. So look, tracking the trope, I mean, lots of tension and chaos and weirdness. And again, like best intentions go afoul. Well, and just the surprise that the girlfriend is in town, you know, that was, oh, oh, she's here. Oh, whoa, she wants to talk to me when have a doesn't like doesn't my being in my life a little bit well and yeah to an extent it's going to have something in common with the next one so let's move on to my name is earl look at you you can't even say it without (laughs) sighing season one episode 21 the bounty hunter yeah, this was one that I did not get into. We've we've talked about before how I I don't know, I've got a little bit of a bad attitude when it comes to the aesthetics of certain parts of the United States, right? I've always been pretty open-minded when it comes to the cultures of other nations, but you know, having grown up in the New York area, 
it was always a turnoff for me. These sort of Midwestern or Southern characters or just certain vibes. And with My Name is Earl, even though I liked Jason Lee from the Kevin Smith movies, it reminds me a lot of my modern day reaction to Ted Lasso. There is a mustache, there is a southern or midwestern twang, there is this sort of golly gee characterization to the personality. I think especially the way that Jason Lee would deliver those voiceovers at the beginning of every episode, that very distinctive you know, uh, style that he's doing, that it's all totally intentional and part of his character and everything, just all of it was a turnoff for me. It just wasn't what I was into, and I did not watch this. Did you like this episode? Honestly, this this suffers from the thing we always talk about with the newer shows being serialized and the premise of this show in particular being a little high concept, right? Yeah. Not your usual, there's a guy and some wacky friends and some stuff happens. Right. So I will say that the short answer is, yeah, because Juliette Lewis and Jason Lee and Jamie Presley and... Sure. I know, it is. this show is like Scientology on screen. <laughs> but it, it like th- there was plenty to like. And, uh, you know, we can get into the... It's one of these early single camera shows. So yes. it has that really fast-paced sort of cinematic yes. feel to it. There's, there's a lot to like, but... I guess I would have to say uh, I had a fair amount of confusion sort of stumbling through the story. So I'll ask you to, again, walk us through the basic overarching premise of My Name is Earl. Yes, and happily happy to do so because this was a show that I loved. I was really into this show probably for two to three seasons. And then I feel like it was somewhere maybe mid-season three or like season four where it it jumped the shark for me. And like, I, I don't even remember what all happened, but it like some shit changed. And there was like a whole wildly different kind of plot thing happening. And I was just like, I'm a little, I I fell off. And I fell off before the end of the series, because I definitely haven't seen a lot of the end of the series. It ended on a cliffhanger, and it was surprisingly canceled after season four. They were expecting a season five. So um, yeah, this is one of those ones where I'm sure that like people who like it were like, oh, man, if they could make a movie and wrap it up, you know, be great. But so the premise of My Name is Earl is you have this 'er ne'er-do well Earl who is kind of a low life and he you know is a drunk and on you know on and off drugs and is kind of he's just sort of a bad guy like he's in and out of jail all the time and he's always doing bad things and trying to scheme or scam to get money or get you know drugs or or get ahead um he you know just is he's struggling for all of these reasons and he steals a lottery ticket from somebody in the pilot episode, scratches it off, and wins $100,000 and is like, woohoo, and then immediately gets hit by a car. And so while he's recovering in the hospital, he's watching the Carson Daly show and hears about the concept of karma. And 
he realizes that everything, everything good that has ever happened in his life has been directly followed by something bad. And that's because it was usually preceded by something that he did was bad, uh, that was bad. And so he realized he needs to start putting out good in the world. He makes a list of all of his wrongs and the premise of the show is that he is now going to check off one by one the things on this list, the wrongs that he has done in his life. He's going to write them. So at the end of the pilot episode, which won an Emmy for writing and directing, and Jamie Presley, who plays his wife Joy, won an Emmy for um, supporting comedic actress as well. So this was like a critically acclaimed show. Yeah. Um, really, like, it, and I can't say enough about at least the first two seasons. I really enjoyed watching the show. I don't really remember why I fell off. So yeah, by the end of the first episode, he he has righted one of the wrongs and immediately finds the lottery ticket that got blown out of his hand when he got hit by the car. So he's able to claim the $100,000 and he vows to use that money to fix all the things, to right all the wrongs on his list. So that's the premise of the show. His wife, Joy, throughout season one, she is not a good person either. So she met and married him on like a drunken night mm -hmm. while she was already like nine months pregnant with another man's baby. And then while they were married was sleeping with someone else, many other people and had a baby by another man. So Joy isn't a good person. Throughout most of season one, she is plotting to either kill Earl or blackmail Earl or somehow like get rid of Earl so she can take the lottery winnings and she won't divorce him even though she keeps kicking him out of the house and has moved in her boyfriend and all of this. She won't divorce him because she wants him out of the way so she can have that money. So the episode that we watched, this episode, is her redemption episode. Yeah, yeah. This is towards the end of the first season and you can tell we're still fleshing out little by little the flashbacks and everything of that initial story. Story, like you said, uh, Jamie Presley is really good. She's yeah. really funny. Uh, she has that sort of a little bit like we were talking about when we were talking about Malin Ackerman and Cameron Diaz and all the sort of funny hot ladies, you know, that she's able to kind of like throw aside the vanity and just kind of, I don't know, she plays that sort of trashiness uh, really well. Yes. The premise that you're describing, which, you know, I, I kind of figured out by context to an extent, but it's it's helpful to hear that all explained. I really believe in the idea of karma in a very sort of roundabout, non-mystical sort of way. This business with the lottery tickets and everything means that this show is choosing to sort of take that route of an almost magical kind of tone, right? Like there are big swings in the plot that could have been more grounded, realistic things if they wanted them to. But this show has that that feel to it that's that's heightened, you know. Right. It has a heightened feel. But what I will say is that I don't remember the show really being fanciful. Mm -hmm. Right. So like beyond that first kind of tit for tat where he, you know, like has the realization and then fixes something and then immediately gets the money, that beyond that, it is each 
episode where he is dealing with or trying to right one of his wrongs is more about him growing internally. So he goes to right the wrong, and more often than not, the person that he goes to right the wrong for, like, he tries to do the thing, and they're like, that's cool, man. Like, like he sort of realizes that it wasn't really for them. It right. was for him. Well, that all may be true, but I'll say that uh, as as we get into this story, the idea that this show is a little more heightened when we talk about this ex and the route in life that she took, I think that's going to be borne out. Yeah. Uh, so the ex we're talking about in this case is Juliette Lewis, right? Yes. This is Juliette Lewis guest starring as Jesse, who's number 45 on Earl's list of, you know, past sins. And this is kind of like a Tim the Toolman story. He he just, he kind of left her, you know, he didn't, he, he broke up with her sort of in an unsatisfactory way. Right. He didn't break up with her. He had been dating her and she was the office manager, assistant, whatever, at the um, bail bonds office that he would often use to get out of jail and would then get hauled back into. And he met her there in a little meet cute scene where they bumped heads. And then, <laughs> and then uh, he calls, he has, he's holding a bag of ice on his balls and he, and then he bumps heads with her and he goes, you can use my nut ice for your head. <laughs> it was only on the outside of my pants. And that's like the cute little yeah. meet cute scene that makes me giggle. My nut ice. I don't know. Like that's a well, phrase that makes me laugh. And then they have a whole little montage and he's like, she was the first girl that let me jump her with my tiny motorcycle and they show she's like laying on the ground and so he has got his little like motorcycle tracks like jumping over her head yeah like a little toy um evil knievel set yeah so yeah they have their whole little thing right and so but then um they've been dating for three weeks and she gets him tickets to a metallica concert for a, you know an upcoming date as like a three-week anniversary present and she gives them to him one night when they're out at the bar and then she leaves to go home or go, you know, to work or whatever. And that is the night we find out later that he meets Joy, he gets blackout drunk and winds up married in within seven hours. Yeah. And so, yeah, this all happens the same night, right? The same night that she gave him these Metallica tickets. And then is the idea that like they don't even see each other until like some future time when they're wearing the Metallica shirts, right? right? Like Earl is walking around with Jamie Presley, with Joy, his his wife, and they they run into Juliet Lewis and she's like, Who's that? Who's that? Whatever. Well, it was like a week later again. Yeah. Like they had only been dating three weeks, and so this was gonna be a date that she, you know, she gave him this present, but they were gonna go together, she thought. And then within seven hours, he wakes up super hungover and joy has been kind of going through his house while he's been sleeping and is like hey did you get us metallica tickets for your for our honeymoon and he's like what uh yeah sure and so she's like great and then you know he realizes he's married and whatever and then at some later date, they go to this Metallica concert, which I'm assuming, like I said, is only like a week later. And they are wearing the Metallica shirts. They're back at the bar. Juliette Lewis comes in and is like, hey, I haven't heard from you in like a week. I've been looking all over for you. What's going on? Did you go to the Metallica concert without me? 
And Joy is like, he sure did, because he's my husband, and punches her in the face and knocks out her two teeth. Yeah. Earl doesn't have to deal with Jesse for a while, but we see from her point of view, there's a whole training montage, basically. Jesse turns herself into Linda Hamilton from Terminator 2. Right. So at this point, like six years have gone by. They haven't seen her in a really, really long time. My assumption is that Earl has decided just to use a different bail bonds company because he's been getting in trouble all of this time. So we're now at a point in the series where Earl has, he he and Joy, I think, are still married, but she's kicked him out enough times that he's just moved into a motel with his brother. Yeah. And she lives in their trailer, in his old trailer, with Darnell, who they call Crab Man, who works at the local, uh, local Crab Shack restaurant. So... They haven't seen Jesse in like six years, but Jesse sees Joy's warrant, bench warrant, come across the bail bonds place and is like, did you say Joy Hickey? I'll take that one. Even though she is a secretary or the assistant, she's right. like the office assistant. That's why assistant. she becomes a bounty hunter. She is like, I'm going to knock out that girl's teeth. And she's doing it with these like fake rabbit teeth. She's like, did you say Joy Hickey? I'll take that one. And they're like, you're not a bail bondsman. And she's like, I'll train. And so then she trains and we see, like you said, the big training montage. And then she gets the like fake rabbit teeth removed and she gets gold teeth to replace them and she's just this badass and her whole point is that she's gonna haul in joy and say she's resisting arrest so she can knock out her teeth to get back at her yeah and we should say this is another one of these episodes that begins and media res right because the whole the the beginning scene is like juliette lewis coming in looking all badass and jamie presley busting into the room and going oh my god the bounty hunter's here whatever and then or saying jesse's back right and then we back up and learn everything that we've been talking about and then we're sort of placed back into the middle of the story and yeah we get this whole thing of like jesse's closing in on them and Earl has to sort of do a lot of this whole searching, I guess, that we wanted Tim, the tool man, to do about like this. This is all my fault because I just kind of cast her aside and ghosted her. And, you know, this is a heightened sort of funny version of what happens to people when you do that. Right. And so he's like, don't worry, Joy, I will help. Like, this is my fault. Um, You can stay here at the hotel. I'll go talk to Jesse. So he goes back to his old trailer and says, hey, Darnell, how's it going? And Jesse's there, like tearing everything apart. And he's like, you know, please, this isn't about her. Like, she'll turn herself in. And she and this is when we find out that Jesse's like, oh, no, I don't care i just want to knock her teeth out because i was so upset that she knocked my teeth out when i hadn't done anything wrong and so she's out for revenge and he's like okay well so then he runs back to the motel and is like let me hide you because she is not out for your bail or your you know your bond she is out to just hurt you and so they go to this other place that they call their vacation home which is like an an abandoned rv at some rv park in the middle of the woods so they're trying to hide out there but then jesse is able to get out of ethan supley who plays earl's brother where they are hiding yeah this eventually like you said before this 
shifts to become more of a story for joy, right? right? Earl is is trying to sort of come clean again in all the ways that Tim didn't and say, this is all my fault. And Joy kind of says like, no, it's my fault. Like I stole you from her. And uh, I don't know what I wrote down was debatable, right? Like this whole thing of who's who's really at fault here and whose responsibility this is. And again, I, I didn't watch all the show leading up to this, but they do sort of show you the relevant stuff that you need to know. And I would say they both kind of screwed her over, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Earl isn't wrong that he just like was not uh, was not a stand up guy in any way. And also, he like she got him she had her friends joy had her friends get him blackout drunk because she was gonna have to move to a a, like a home for unwed mothers who didn't have any money like a shelter because she didn't like the baby was about to come and she didn't have anywhere to live and any income so she was like i gotta find me a man so that i can have a place to live and somebody to take care of me and so she had her friends she kind of like like hid against, you know, the backdrop of the bar, just like chilled while her friends got him blackout drunk. And then she came over when he was too drunk to notice and then got, you know, got walked him to the altar, got him married, you know, all that stuff. And then played it like he had wanted it all of that time, you know, for all of that time after, even though she was, she didn't love him. She didn't care about him, you know, but it was, that was her meal ticket. That's what she was going to do. And what he did wrong was that once he woke up the next morning and realized he was married and he didn't try to like tell his girlfriend and get out of it. In terms of the ghosting, he's just as at fault as Tim was. But yeah, Joy explains all of this. That is like crucial. My name is Earl Lore, I'm sure. Like we're getting her side of this whole time when they first met and that, yeah, their whole relationship is kind of a contrivance. And so as she's explaining everything and kind of fleshing this all out, I'm starting to realize as someone who didn't watch the show that much, uh, Joy's pretty crazy, I guess. Yes. Like, this is part of her character. Like, she is a very, like, extreme person. And uh, the sort of resolution of this story is her coming to terms with going to jail, you know, yeah, going well, to girl jail. And But she never, like, one of the things that you never see her do in, in, in most episodes of this show is take any responsibility for anything. Yeah. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always like, no, that's Earl's fault. No, that's Darnell's fault. She's always screaming. Like, she's all, I mean, she just, she's crazy. And, like, absolutely out for number one. Like, she, it's, nothing so is ever her fault. The idea, like, is Earl just characterized as such an easygoing guy yeah. that he's a good match for her because of that? Yep. Just like Darnell is. Darnell is even more easygoing than Earl. Like, you saw him while Jesse was, like, tearing up his house. Um, he's just sitting on the couch like, whoa, okay, this is what's happening. I'm just trying to take it easy. And he is very, like, he's very chill, even more than Earl. Yeah. So this ends with a standoff, like a full-on movie parody standoff. Right, that begins between the two girls. With a Eno Marconi score from, like, the old westerns, and then goes into... Uh, 
Yeah, and then transitions into uh, everybody was kung fu fighting. Yes. And uh, yeah, we get like full on silly like fight between them. Right, where... You know, Joy is like, she, this girl, Jessie, is all trained. She's like a badass. She's going to kick my ass. Like, I'm not going to be able to defend myself. And then she's like, I guess I just have to face up to it. So she goes up to her and she's like, look, I just want to turn myself in. And Jessie's like, hell no, I am going to knock your teeth out. And Joy's like, all right, well, bring it. And then in every turn, just like gets the one up, like just kicks her ass, like totally kicks Jessie's ass and knocks out her two gold teeth. And picks him up and runs back to Earl's car and goes, melt these down and bail me out. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we leave it, right? That she is going to turn herself in, right? Like yes. that is her sort of character development. Yes. So yeah, that's a whole thing, you know, to itself if you're watching this show. But for us tracking the trope, again, you know, you get the the male character has to learn to, to have a spine and that, you know, there are consequences to your actions and you can't kind of like, if I can't see you, you can't see me kind of thing and just sort of, you know, avoid the confrontation. Yeah, I wonder what would be different if we had four episodes where it was the ex-boyfriend coming to town. Yeah, we definitely can do that next time. There are plenty of... You know, there's plenty of examples of that. I'm sure just off the dome that happens in 30 Rock, you got to think. Yes. I don't know. Kate and Allie probably have had that happen. <laughs> the ex-husband, for sure. I don't know if they meet the ex, but yeah, absolutely. So overall, for me, it was really fun to go back to My Name is Earl. I haven't watched this show since I stopped watching it. So I was enjoying every minute of that. I remember how much I just love Jamie Presley. Like, she is so funny. They're, like, not an episode goes by in My Name is Earl that doesn't have a joy moment that is just like, man, she's funny. Um, I started watching that show Mom because Jamie Presley's in it. Like, she is just a funny actress. These were all fun and in some ways frustrating in the same way because they all feature, maybe except for My Name is Earl, they all feature like social awkwardness and tension. They all feature people sort of making decisions or behaving in a way that makes me go like, "Eh, stop, don't do that. You know, (laughs) you don't want to do that. Uh, They're kind of even money for me entertainment wise like they all had a few chuckles none of them are like oh my god that one was amazing i will say with my name is earl like that totally you definitely can see that like earning its place in those early single camera shows as being like i said cinematic and having that like fun interesting premise that they can sort of carry out in that serialized way and you see the sort of blurring of the lines between the movie actors and the tv actors so you can have people like jason lee in the in the forefront of that that you wouldn't always have before so like there's definitely good stuff going on there but the other side of that is that it's not as sitcom-y you know so it doesn't quite like hit that same sweet spot in a lot of ways, like, you'll hate me for it, but home improvement was kind of the most fun just because I don't know if I could go so far as to say it was like a big Al episode, but it did feature him a fair amount, and that's always fun. And uh, I don't know. I think that one, you know, again, just just 
sort of playing out that conflict and like, oh, you thought that was a good idea, but now it turns out to blow up in your face. Like, I don't know. It's it's a tough call for me, but I think I might have enjoyed that one the most. See, what we are establishing is the like our own sitcom study trope of you being a defender of like my least favorite shows. You have really liked Everybody Loves Raymond, King of Queens, <laughs> And home improvement. Well, see, I disagree with the phrase really liked. I think (laughs) what it is maybe is that uh, I do come in with an agenda of like, it sort of goes without saying that these aren't my favorite shows. So I do want to come in kind of looking for something good. And frankly, being a little bit devil's advocate, knowing that you're going to have plenty to say about the problematic relationships, which is extremely true. Honestly, it has everything to do with expectations that I'm going into it thinking it's going to be the husband is hilarious and we're totally on his side and the wife is a nagging shrew. And so with each individual instance, when it ends up as like a logical debate where there's a well-realized and well-articulated argument on each side, even though, of course, it still falls prey to all of the bullshit that you're calling out, it's always more compassionately drawn and more like there's always so much more respect given to the female character than I expected there to be. (laughs) And like you said, I think I'm looking at the individual instances. You're looking at the overall arc of the series. And so, yeah, it's just a matter of me going like, Hey, maybe this is like a three out of 10, but I thought it was going to be a one. A one. Yeah. Well, and I think really what it boils down to when I talk about like the arc of the series is exactly the way that home improvement ended he didn't learn a lesson he didn't change and now we're just kicking the can down the road to the next time he's presented with a a situation like this and we're gonna say oh he's just gonna do it Uh uh-uh i'm not walking away with that with that idea that he's just gonna be better next time no the fuck he's not and so i think that maybe is like where you're you were like oh no he learned his lesson at the end he didn't change his behavior at the end. So I think that's no, interesting, though. The that... very end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> All right. So much for meeting the ex. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we are getting snowed in for the holidays. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Season 5, Episode 9, Not a Christmas Story. Perfect Strangers, Season 2, Episode 11, A Christmas Story. Charles in Charge, Season 3, Episode 1, You'll Laugh. And Roseanne, Season 5, Episode 12, It's No Place Like Home for the Holidays. Yep, that is the forecast for next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Dog.